When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Big Bear Lake, California. This small city, which is only six and a half square miles, is an adventure destination during all four seasons. With an elevation of nearly 7,000 feet, winter activities are especially popular in Big Bear. The first ski jump was erected in 1929 and quickly claimed a world ski jump record. This brought significant attention to the area from enthusiasts. The move to a winter resort town was solidified in 1952 when the Big Bear Lake Ski Resort, now known as Snow Summit, was opened. Snow machines keep the resorts in business when the weather does not cooperate. Big Bear Lake is also known for excellent fishing, mountain biking, and water sports. The population of Big Bear Lake ranges from just over 5,000 people to over 100,000 people, depending on seasonal events and activities. Wildlife flourishes in Big Bear's alpine environment. The area is home to bald eagles, bears, mountain lions, deer, and more, plus about 29 species of protected rare plants, some indigenous to the area. Visitors to this quaint and peaceful mountain town enjoy an escape from the hustle and bustle of city life. But in 2013, one vengeful visitor used this forested community to escape from his own evil deeds. On Sunday, February 3rd, 2013, breaking news out of Orange County, California, stunned the nation. So began a reign of terror that gripped the Southland for the next nine days. On Sunday, a 911 call came into the Irvine Police Department. A person walking to their car on the top floor of a parking structure noticed a parked car with two people in it who were not moving and glass from the car's shattered windows was scattered all around the car. When Irvine Police arrived, they found two people in the car, both of whom had been shot multiple times. There were 14 shell casings on the ground. Now, this parking structure was attached to an upscale high-security condominium complex near Concordia University, which is a private Lutheran college. The victims were identified as 27-year-old Keith Lawrence and 28-year-old Monica Kwan. They had recently moved into the condo complex and had just gotten engaged days prior. Monica was a 2002 graduate of Walnut High School in the San Gabriel Valley and a standout basketball player. She was only five feet six, but set school records for the most three-pointers in a season, as well as a game, a record that stood at the school at the time of her death. Monica received a full basketball scholarship to California State University at Long Beach. She played there for two years before transferring to Concordia University in Irvine, where she graduated in 2007. Monica went on to earn a master's degree before becoming the assistant women's basketball coach at Cal State University Fullerton. Concordia is also where she met her fiancé, Keith Lawrence. 
Keith was also a standout basketball player at his high school, which was Moore Park, where he played point guard and shooting guard. After Keith graduated from high school in 2003, his high school retired his basketball jersey. He attended Concordia University, and after graduating in 2008, Keith successfully completed the Ventura County Sheriff's Academy. After that, he was hired by University of Southern California's Public Safety Department. And this was just six months before he was killed. Two investigators, nothing in the car seemed to be disturbed, and Irvine police ruled out a robbery because Monica's purse and Keith's wallet were still in the car. And Monica's diamond engagement ring was left on her finger. But crimes like this don't happen in Irvine. No, they do not. The FBI has named Irvine America's safest city of its size, which is a population of 250,000 residents or fewer, every year since 2005. Kath, I also read that Irvine is the largest, like geographically the largest, planned community in the United States. Yes. And I remember when they were building it, I was like, oh my God, who would live here? It's so sterile. Now I'd kill to have a house there. All the trees have grown in and it's beautiful. It really is. Irvine police detectives pulled up surveillance video around the condo complex and a dark gray Nissan Titan pickup truck caught their attention. In the hours leading up to the murders of Monica and Keith, the video showed the truck driving up and down the street in front of the complex, parking, repositioning itself, and then driving around the block several times. This was the best lead the police had, and they started looking for this truck. The news media publicized the murders, and Irvine is a city where residents are very involved. They do not hesitate to reach out to police, but the residents did not report any strange sightings or any other information regarding these murders. Four days after the murders in Irvine, two Los Angeles police officers were driving to a protection detail in Corona, California. This is about 30 miles north of Irvine. They were driving behind a dark gray Nissan pickup truck when suddenly the driver braked, got out of the truck, and fired an assault rifle at their police cruiser. The officers ducked for cover and returned fire, but this gunman hopped back in his truck and jumped on the freeway. Unfortunately, one of the bullets fired at the officers disabled the police car, so they were unable to follow the truck. One officer received a non-life-threatening wound to his head, and the other officer was not hit. About 20 minutes after the Corona shooting, two officers with the Riverside Police Department were stopped at a traffic light. A gray Nissan Titan pickup truck pulled up across the intersection from them. The truck then drove through the red light, and the driver fired a volley of shots into their patrol car. 34-year-old training officer Michael Crane died almost immediately. He was a husband and the father of young children, and he was riding shotgun. 27-year-old trainee Andrew Takius, who was the driver, was shot nine times. That was unbelievable. Terrible. And survived. Incredible. Yeah. Right. On an ABC7 report 10 years later, Takius spoke with reporter Rob McMillan about what happened. Officer Takius told the reporter that he only remembered that suddenly their patrol car was coming under fire. There was a video that he was shown with the patrol car slowly rolling through the intersection, and he told the reporter he didn't even remember that. But he did remember a taxi driver coming up to the car, and Officer Takius thought this taxi driver was the threat. But as he was struggling to get his arms to move, the taxi driver reached into the patrol car and put the gear shift into park, causing the officer to realize he was not a threat, but he was there to help them. So Officer Takius directed the taxi driver to hold the police radio up to his mouth so he could call for help. 
And Kath, I think you heard the 911 video. We're not going to play it here. Right. But it's shocking how strong his voice is considering he was shot nine times. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Kathy and I are both sick. So we don't... both have bronchitis. Exactly. And we sound prettier than you think because right. everything that's being edited out are all of our hacky coughs. Exactly. But we still have. We still have our Prosecco to get us through this uh, little session here. Exactly. My brother has a saying. He says, your puny germs can't hurt me. So apparently I got to tell him my germs aren't that puny exactly. because you're sick as well. <laughs> so anyway, one thing I did notice about the 911 call, Kath, is that his voice is very strong. He doesn't make a lot of sense. He does have the fortitude. He does have the presence of mind to say, officer down, send help. But when he's trying to say more things, he's not making much sense. There was like a little like garble or whatever. Yeah, exactly. At the time, the names of the officers who were shot were not released because there was fear that the shooter might come after the surviving officer or his family. At schools near the shootings, parents pulled their kids out and brought them home while other schools closed down entirely. It was clear that there was a dangerous individual out there targeting law enforcement officers. And by now, the police knew who they were looking for and that he was driving a dark gray Nissan pickup truck. So Los Angeles Police Sergeant Teresa Evans received a phone call from the National City Police Department. National City is in San Diego County, and it's about 15 miles north of the Mexican border. Sergeant Evans was told that LAPD police gear was found in a dumpster in the city and there was a notebook with her name in it. The discarded items along with this notebook included an LAPD uniform shirt with the name Dorner on it. This information chilled Sergeant Evans to the bone. She immediately picked up the phone and called Irvine police to let them know she believed a man named Christopher Dorner murdered Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence. Christopher Dorner grew up in Orange County and played football at Southern Utah University before graduating in 2001. The next year, he joined the Navy and was rated as a marksman. While still in the military, he applied to the Los Angeles Police Academy in 2005. He was allowed to serve the remainder of his commitment as a reservist and graduated from the Police Academy in February of 2006. McCath, during his time as a reservist, Dorner received a Navy rifle marksmanship ribbon and a Navy pistol shot ribbon that denoted he achieved an expert rating. After graduating from the Los Angeles Police Academy, Dorner was recalled by the Navy and sent to the Middle East. After serving a 13-month deployment in Bahrain, when Dorner returned, he still had to complete his mandatory probation year with the Los Angeles Police Department. So, on his return to L.A. in July of 2007, Dorner was paired with training officer Sergeant Teresa Evans to complete his probationary training. Several months after Dorner returned to the LAPD, he filed a complaint against Sergeant Evans and accused her of excessive force during an arrest. Following an investigation that did not support his claims, Dorner was fired in September of 2008 for making false statements. According to an LA Times article by Joel Rubin, Jack Leonard, and Kate Linthicum, on the day Dorner was fired, LAPD officials took the unusual step of having armed guards stand watch at his disciplinary hearing in downtown L.A. One police official who was present at the hearing and who requested anonymity due to safety concerns said it was clear to everyone present that Dorner was wound up. Dorner appealed to the Board of Rights, which is the Disciplinary Appeal Board, and it has the ultimate say on whether LAPD officers accused of serious wrongdoing 
remain on the force or receive significant penalties. However, Dorner's appeal was denied and he was officially terminated from the department in January of 2009. Randall Kwan, who was an attorney, but also a retired LAPD captain, and by the way, was the first Chinese American captain in the LAPD, represented Dorner at the hearing. And Randall Kwan was the father of murder victim Monica Kwan. It was this background information that Sergeant Evans relayed to the Irvine Police Department. Ultimately, Dorner appealed to the California Court of Appeal, which affirmed the lower court's ruling in 2011. So, Kath, this thing wended its way through the appeal system for a few years. So, under California law, administrative findings are entitled to a presumption of correctness, and Dorner bore the responsibility of proving that the findings were incorrect. And the appellate court said, sorry, you didn't do that. According to the LA Times, Sergeant Evans later told the department's internal affairs investigators that on Dorner's first day of working with her as a trainee, he informed her that he planned to sue the LAPD after he completed his probationary period. He told her that he did not like how the department had responded to complaints he made against some of his academy classmates. So Dorner fired from LAPD, and for the next 18 months, he maintained his position in the Navy Reserve, but was honorably discharged on February 1st, 2013, with the rank of lieutenant. Two days later, he became America's Most Wanted. After the murders in Irvine and the attacks on the law enforcement officers, investigators discovered Dorner posted an 11,000 word diatribe on his Facebook page just hours after the murders of Keith Lawrence and Monica Kwan. In the post, Dorner discussed his history, motivations and plans. He wrote, I am here to change and make policy. The culture of LAPD versus the community and honest slash good officers needs to and will change. I am here to correct and calibrate your moral compasses to true north. And Kath, as you know, he then listed the LAPD officers he described as high value targets. Mm-hmm. So he hits out at pretty much everyone right. in this manifesto in a very general way. So first he says... To those Caucasian officers who joined South Bureau divisions with the sole intent of victimizing minorities who are uneducated and unaware of criminal law, civil law, and civil rights, you prefer the South Bureau because a use of force slash deadly force is likely and the individual you use use of force on will likely not report it. You are a high value target. Those black officers in supervisory ranks and pay grades who stay in South Bureau even though you live in the Valley or OC, for the sole intent of getting retribution towards subordinate Caucasian officers for the pain and hostile work environment their elders inflicted on you, you are a high-value target. You perpetuated the cycle of racism in the department as well. You breed a new generation of bigoted Caucasian officers when you belittle them and treat them unfairly. Those lesbian officers in supervising positions who go to work day in, day out, with the sole intent of attempting to prove your misandrous authority, not feminism, to degrade male officers, you are a high-value target. Those Asian officers who stand by and observe daily everything I previously mentioned other officers participate in on a daily basis, but you say nothing, stand for nothing, and protect nothing. 
Why? Because of your usual saying, I don't like conflict. You are a high value target as well. Those of you who go along to get along have no backbone and destroy the foundation of courage. You are the enablers of those who are guilty of misconduct. You are just as guilty as those who break the code of ethics and oath you swore. Citizens and non-combatants do not render medical aid to downed officers slash enemy combatants. They would not do the same for you. Let the balance of loss of life take place. Sometimes a reset needs to occur. To those children of the officers who are eradicated, your parent was not the individual you thought they were. As you get older, you will see the evidence that your parent was a tyrant who lost their ethos and instead followed the path of moral corruptness. Basically, Kath, this was a multi-page manifesto of a man who remembered every indignity perpetrated upon him in his life. Going all the way back to first grade. First grade. Literally. He, he talked about his first grade principal. It was crazy. Like talking about an event that happened to you when you were six years old. And it, what was also funny with this is he did remember every indignity. He did remember all of these people and he had all this anger. But in the midst of this, there was also humor. That's what was crazy about it. He named so many people in there. You know, like he said to Chris Christie, he said, what did he say? You're my second. Second favorite for the 2016 election. He wanted Hillary first. Exactly. Yeah. And then said, but do your family and your fans a favor. Walk a little more, eat a little less. Right. We want you to be around. Right. He also said that he thought the first George Bush president was the best president. Yes. His second favorite. But well, yeah, Bill Clinton was his favorite president. Right. He talked about his favorite music. He talked about the hottest women. Favorite comedians. Yeah. It was very, very strange. It was how many pages was that thing? It was about 23. It's 11,000 words, which is what it kind of adds up to. But I didn't print it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Another thing he said was that he wanted his brain preserved for science. He talked about a depression after being fired from LAPD. And he also mentioned the fact that he had two concussions. So very fatalistic view and also very sort of like I am the meter of justice. Right. I don't know if there's such a thing as an executioner's complex. He wasn't a hero complex. No. It was like, like I, am, I am the standard. I am right. Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely somebody who was wound up in the belief that everything he was doing was for the good. And that's where the problem comes in. In his manifesto, Dorner specifically listed 40 law enforcement personnel whom he was prepared to kill. And these are names that were redacted from the public version. But he stated, quote, I know most of you who personally know me are in disbelief to hear from media reports that I am suspected of committing such horrendous murders and have taken drastic and shocking action in the last couple days. Unfortunately, this is a necessary evil that I do not enjoy but must partake in complete for substantial change to occur within the LAPD and reclaim my name, end quote. In this thing, Kath, he issued a single demand. He wanted a public admission by the LAPD that his termination was in retaliation for reporting excessive force. And of course, he claimed that there was evidence that supported his claim of excessive force against Sergeant Evans, but it was ignored so she could advance her career. He also named several people at the Board of Rights hearing, including Randall Kwan, Monica's father, who, as we said, was the attorney who represented him. Dorner wrote, quote, I never had the opportunity to have a family of my own. I'm terminating yours, end quote. Retired LAPD Captain William Hayes was also mentioned in the manifesto. 
Dorner worked for him in the Harbor Division, and Captain Hayes was the person who initiated the complaint against Dorner that led to his termination. In an ABC documentary, True Crime, The Manhunt for Christopher Dorner, Captain Hayes said that when Dorner targeted Captain Kwan's family, it was the first time in the history of the department that someone had openly targeted LAPD family members. So in his Facebook post, Dorner wrote about his military training, knowledge of intelligence, tactics, and weapons training, and the arsenal of weapons in his possession, which of course was kind of funny, Kathy, because he also talked in his manifesto about the need for gun control. He also had a warning for any members of law enforcement who would attempt to stop him. Think before you attempt to intervene, you will not survive. Why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Want to get smarter about investing? Then tune in to the Capital Ideas podcast from Capital Group, home of American Funds Distributors, Inc., one of the world's leading asset managers. Each week, we bring you stock market outlooks, macroeconomic updates, and investment strategies that can help you succeed. Learn from portfolio managers with decades of experience about how they navigate uncertain markets. Prepare to be engaged, enlightened, and entertained by listening to the Capital Ideas podcast today. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Dorner was seeking revenge, and a statewide manhunt was underway. The FBI was also brought in. The Los Angeles police chief at the time, Charlie Beck, went on the local news to warn the public. Dorner's photo, a photo of his truck, and the license plate number were shown on the screen. Chief Beck warned everyone, if you see him, call 911 immediately. Do not engage. Dorner was armed and dangerous and had already killed two civilians and a police officer and also wounded three additional police officers. 
Chief Beck stated that the LAPD and allied local law enforcement agencies were implementing all measures possible to ensure the safety of LAPD personnel, their families, and the Los Angeles and surrounding communities. A couple of days after becoming aware of Dorner's Facebook post, in what we assumed was an effort to slow the body count, Chief Beck reached out to Dorner through the media. He told Dorner that there would be a review of the disciplinary case that led to his dismissal. Chief Beck said officials would re-examine the allegations by Dorner that his law enforcement career was undone by racist colleagues. The next day, the mayor of Los Angeles offered a $1 million reward for information leading to the capture of Christopher Dorner. You know, Kath, it was funny because according to Chief Beck, it was his wife who came up with the idea of putting together a really massive reward, like the largest ever offered locally. And so within 24 hours, they raised a million dollars. And I can't remember how many donors it was from. I think it was from a couple dozen. I think you're right. And those included like government agencies and police departments, civic organizations, that kind of thing. But also businesses and individuals kicked in money too. Yeah. So $1 million. Crazy. Yeah. So now that the investigators knew who they were looking for, they started backtracking Dorner's movements. They began in Irvine with the murders of Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence. From there, Dorner was next seen in a marina in San Diego. He tied up an 81-year-old man with the intention of stealing his boat. And in fact, Kathy actually said to the man, I'm going to Mexico. Now, Kathy and I kind of laughed at this next part, and anybody who owns a boat will understand why. So we were talking about the 81-year-old man who was tied up and Dorner was going to steal his boat. Dorner, despite being in the Navy, maybe he just didn't drive boats of that size. Right. When he untied the boat, instead of throwing the rope up on the dock, he left it in the water. So when he attempted to leave, he ran right on over that rope and it got caught in the propeller and he was going nowhere fast. Exactly. Just done. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know, he was like, this is not the escape I was expecting. I'm going to cruise off to Mexico. Exactly. Crap. The very first time Kathy and I went camping together a hundred years ago, back in the day at our lake, we rented a boat. We're in this rental trying to figure everything out in the middle of the lake. And I can't remember who was driving, but whoever was driving, we're circling back to get the skier and we run over the rope. The boat immediately dies. Right. And of course, we immediately start snipping at each other about whose fault it is. And now that we don't remember whose fault it was, we're assigning it to one specific person and you know who you are. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So anyway, so I used to be able to hold my breath for long periods of time. I said, I'm going to swim under the boat and just figure this thing out. Probably took me five times, but I felt like, who's the guy on Baywatch? David Hasselhoff? I felt like David Hasselhoff because I was able to get that stupid rope untangled. Yes, she was. And unfortunately, it was not the last time this happened, as we said. No, and it actually got worse because this was Uh, an outboard motor. Right. The boat we bought was an inboard motor. So it was just a little bit trickier. And we still managed to screw it up. I know. I know. (laughs) You've got a gazillion kids and you're not paying attention or everybody's paying attention. Right. It just, it'll happen. Exactly. But I will say for as many times as we've gone, for as many runs as we've done, Mm -hmm. it's a tiny, tiny, tiny fractional percentage of how many times we've actually done that to the rope. But when we read that Dorner ran over the rope, we were both cracking up. So anyway, after Dorner's failed attempt at stealing this boat, a wallet with Dorner's identification and his LAPD badge were found near the San Diego airport. But because of the subsequent shootings of officers in Riverside County, the LAPD realized he had put those there to create a false trail. So now at this point, the manhunt has brought a sense of panic. 
Every Southern California county was touched in some way. And there were news helicopters all over the place. And people were in a state of hypervigilance slash hysteria. Right. I mean, you remember this. Oh, my gosh. And you know, what's funny. When I told my sister that we were doing this case, Mm -hmm. she said the one thing you have to do is impart to your listeners just how terrifying it was for all of these millions of people. Right. I mean, you didn't know if you should go outside. You didn't know where you should go. You kind of had your head on a swivel the whole time. That is exactly how it was. And you went out driving in your car. First of all, anyone who had a gray truck would have been a fool to drive it. But you're literally waiting at red lights and you're just looking around. Everybody was on high alert. It was just so terrifying because first he kills these poor people in Irvine. Then he attacks these poor officers and then attacks other officers. Like, where was this guy going to surface next? It was terrifying. Yeah. So just hours after the ambush of the two officers in Riverside, you know, the ones who were stopped at the red light, a new development came up 60 miles away in Los Angeles County. There were two officer-involved shootings that came in within minutes of one another and within blocks of each other. The first shooting occurred when a dark gray pickup truck was slowly driving down a cul-de-sac in the early morning hours without its lights. At the end of the street was the home of an LAPD captain that they believed Dorner would target. Now, Kath, the reason they believed that Dorner would target this captain was about a month prior, the captain had said he was at home and his doorbell rang. So he went and looked through the peephole and didn't recognize the man who was on the other side of it. So he didn't answer the door, which, of course, also set me off on another little tangent, too, because, oh, my God, if police captains aren't answering their doors, why neither should I? Exactly. But anyway, the captain didn't recognize the man, watched him walk off the front porch. But then when Dorner's photo came up a month later, he knew exactly who that was. And that was the man who had visited him. That's terrifying. It is terrifying. So eight LAPD officers were assigned to be this captain's protective detail until Dorner was captured. And when they saw this gray truck rolling slowly without lights down into his cul-de-sac, they opened fire. Now, we don't know all the details of how it all unfolded. Or why. Yeah, exactly. But we do know that just minutes later and a couple blocks away, officers on another protective detail saw a different matching truck and also opened fire. Both incidents were cases of mistaken identity. And just goes to show civilians weren't the only ones who were on edge. Oh, for sure. Not justifying it. Right. Just they weren't on edge. Everybody was on edge. Inside the first truck in the captain's neighborhood were two women. One was a 71-year-old mother and her 47-year-old daughter doing their daily newspaper route. They were driving slowly because they threw newspapers at each driveway and they were traveling with their headlights off because they didn't want to disturb the homeowners when they pulled into their driveways. Bad stinking luck. I know. I know. I know. I I am assuming they had to like pull in and like make a A three point turn. Exactly. Anyway, both women were injured. In the second incident, the solo male occupant was not hit by any gunfire, thankfully. Four days after this rampage began, on February 7th, 2013, at around 8.30 in the morning, a local resident named Daniel McGowan came across a burning pickup truck on a remote U.S. Forest Service road near Big Bear Lake in Southern California's San Bernardino Mountains. It was a dark gray Nissan Titan that was registered to Christopher Dorner. Now, Big Bear is about two and a half hours east of Los Angeles, 
and you have to drive a winding mountain road to get up to the top. And in early February of 2013, there was snow on the ground. So knowing Dorner was heavily armed and extremely dangerous, the most expedient way for the LAPD to bring in tactical units was by helicopter. Snow was falling as the police set up a command post in the Bear Mountain Ski Resort parking lot. Law enforcement officials discovered that Dorner's mother owned a cabin about 35 miles away, so they had to work under the assumption that Dorner had a familiarity with the terrain. More than 100 members of local law enforcement spread out across an eight-mile area and conducted door-to-door searches, speaking with residents and entering cabins that were either unlocked or looked suspicious. So canines were brought in, helicopters equipped with thermal and infrared technology searched the area from above. All schools in the district were immediately placed on lockdown, and residents were told to lock themselves in their cabins. The one good thing about the snow in this case was that it made it easier to track Dorner. Despite the presence of hundreds of additional law enforcement officers swarming the area in the hunt for this heavily armed murder suspect, the ski resorts remained open. And I got to be honest, I don't remember that. Okay, I don't remember them being open either, but I wasn't paying attention to ski resorts. But it is shocking. Yeah. But I could also think law enforcement are like, okay, he's going to his mom's cabin. It's 35 miles away from here. So the day after the LAPD set up this command post in Big Bear, FBI agents investigated a package sent to Anderson Cooper at CNN. It appeared to be legitimate. Investigators believed that Dorner wanted Anderson to take up his cause in the media. This package was mailed two days before the first murders in Irvine, but Cooper was not aware of it because it was forwarded directly to the news channel's security team. When Cooper was made aware of it a week later, Dorner was still on the loose. So now we're one week after the first murders occurred in Irvine. And as we mentioned, emphatically, residents across Southern California were just rattled. Mm -hmm. But despite the massive search in Big Bear and thousands of tips coming in across the Southland, five days went by with no sightings of Dorner and no viable leads. Police began to think Dorner had left the mountains. The command post was shut down and the search area was significantly scaled back. And Kath, I remember this. I remember thinking, oh, my God, how did he get off that mountain? And I remember thinking, where's he going to turn up next? Yeah. According to the ABC documentary referenced earlier, Jim and Karen Reynolds own several cabins directly across from the police's established command post. Once the search was scaled back, they started getting their cabins ready for new renters. Now, Kath, as you know, the local mountains like Lake Arrowhead, Big Bear, so many of the cabins there are not used year round by residents. They're rented out over and over. There's just a ton of renters there. In fact, my parents, this was our annual trip to the mountains. They would typically do a week, but sometimes two. They did this since I was a kid and it was usually like three families together. And it's kind of like how we do our lake trip where the adults get their own bedrooms and the kids just like land where they land. But in these rental cabins, what was so awesome is there was oftentimes a basement that you could tell was just designed for kids. It might have five beds in it. It might have nine beds in it, like just all these twin beds all over the place. Like it was so much fun. As kids, we were insane about the mountains and they're a little bit more built up now. But back then they had you could just pick a random hill and do your sledding and stuff. You remember when I was young, I told you I had that friend, Judy, like Mm -hmm. she was a go-getter, right? But we would go to the mountains and just get free rain. It is a miracle that every child came back at the end of the day. I mean, like it was freezing. We didn't know where we were, but we would just do whatever we wanted. And that was the first place I learned how to do um, 
light as a feather, stiff as a board. Oh, did you're you, kidding. No, did you ever do oh, that? Totally. Yeah. You know, it would be like, oh my God, this is real. Did you ever actually pick someone up? We did Mrs. K. How? I know. I actually believe it's real now. To the- <laughs> It was an adult. You guys were kids. I know we were kids. But anyway, it was fun and funny. I have so many fond memories of like Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead. Anyway, back to the story. So here we have Jim and Karen Reynolds, and they're getting their cabins ready for renters. The Reynolds entered one of their cabins, and as Karen went down the hallway toward the bedrooms, she came face to face with Christopher Dorner. He was coming out of a bedroom with a gun in his hand. You and I were discussing this because I'm betting he wasn't in the cabin the whole time, but they were right directly across the street from the command post. Okay, so that's what you told me. I did not know that when I was first reading about the story. That is terrifying. Anyway, so Karen sees him. She screams and runs. So she's in the hallway and Jim was heading to the kitchen. As he's turning around to find out why his wife is screaming, Dorner runs past him, chasing Karen with a gun. So Dorner catches Karen and he holds Jim at gunpoint as well. And he says, come into the living room. He sits them on the sofa and he tells the two of them that if they do what he says, he will not hurt them. He said he did not have a problem with them. He only had a problem with the police. So this is terrifying to me. He orders the Reynolds to stand up, turn around and face the wall. He makes them kneel down on the sofa and lean their heads over until they're touching the wall. He tells them, put your hands behind your back and cross your feet. Then he ties them up and puts pillowcases over their heads. He ties their mouth with a cord, like over Over the the pillowcases, over the pillowcases, which is just the whole thing is terrifying. I agree. And so I am assuming these poor people thought they were going to be executed. There's no other reasonable interpretation, honestly. I knew how this ended up. It, it was still scary to, yeah, to like, read about. I, I don't remember. Because we never heard this part of it. Right, exactly. So anyway, the Reynolds are there. They're tied up in this very vulnerable position. And then they hear Dorner packing things. Then they hear him leave. So they wait. Like, got to make sure it's safe. They wait a few minutes and then they begin trying to get themselves freed. And you know what's interesting, Kathy, Jim Reynolds says he still has scars on his wrists. And I am sure that man was acting furiously in an effort to get the ropes off and save his wife and all that kind of stuff. Not only that, but even though Dorner was gone, you're not free yet because he can come back at any time. Just the terror of what they went through. I can't even imagine. And then the superhuman strength attended to all your adrenaline. It's no wonder he has scars on his wrists. Anyway, they get free. And fortunately, Dorner didn't take Karen's cell phone, which was nearby. So she picks up the phone. She calls 911 and tells the police what happened and that he is driving their burgundy Nissan Rogue. But there are so few roads up and down the mountain. Dorner was pretty much trapped. Mm -hmm. And at this point, he does not know the Reynolds freed themselves and reported the car he stole until he was spotted by a San Bernardino County Sheriff's Unit and Dorner saw the recognition as they passed. Before the deputies could engage, Dorner turned down a residential road that went deep into a canyon. On this road, he came across a man in a white pickup truck. So Dorner stopped the man. He let the man get out and get his dog and start walking down the road. And then Dorner jumped into this pickup truck and kept driving. The sheriff's deputies, Alex Collins and Jeremiah McKay, followed Dorner into the canyon and they knew that they were close when they came across the abandoned Nissan Rogue. In the back seat of the Rogue, they found a sniper rifle. Dorner was next spotted by Fish and Wildlife game wardens in a helicopter, and Dorner shot at them. They returned fire, but they missed him. 
So now the two sheriff deputies in the patrol car, Collins and McKay, even though they lost sight of Dorner, they continued down the road into the canyon where they knew there were several houses. Detective McKay spotted fresh tire tracks in the snow and told Deputy Collins that these tracks were new. As Deputy Collins and Detective McKay began walking toward these cabins, gunfire erupted from one of them. Collins was hit multiple times and ran behind their vehicle for cover. And actually, he was hit again because as he was behind the vehicle, one of Dorner's shots hit under the car and it skipped up over to the other side and it hit his hand. Damn, talk about bad luck. No kidding. As this was happening, Detective Jeremiah McKay was returning Dorner's fire. Tragically, Detective McKay was shot and killed. As reinforcements arrived on the scene, a plan was put into place. Law enforcement officers circled the cabin at strategic locations, and residents were told to remain inside with their doors locked. An armored vehicle arrived to provide cover. Tear gas canisters were fired into the cabin, and calls to surrender were made over a loudspeaker. However, they never received a response. A couple of hours later, Dorner began setting off green smoke grenades, which led incident commanders to respond by using pyrotechnic tear gas. Kath, I had to look this up. It looks like pyrotechnic tear gas differs from regular tear gas and that there's a heat source attached to it and it heats up the canister so much that when they lob it into a building or a room or something like that, it's too hot for somebody to pick up and either throw out the window, throw back at the officers, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. Because doesn't it piss you off when you watch like video of riots and the cops lob in tear gas canisters and somebody throws them back at the cops? Absolutely. Yeah. So this is designed to avoid that. And Kath, they believed it was their only option if they hoped to get Dorner to surrender. Because, of course, with all that he's done, they can't rush the house. They're not going to send deputies in there. Now, pyrotechnic tear gas does have that heating element. And even though it does not always ignite, in this case, it did. A few minutes later, smoke began coming out of the cabin and officers on scene surrounded the cabin, prepared for Dorner to run out of the cabin shooting. Ten minutes after the fire started, officers heard a single gunshot from inside the cabin. The fire raged for hours, and the heat of the fire caused Dorner's ammunition to explode from within the cabin. And apparently he had quite a bit. Exactly. So it was extremely dangerous for firefighters to put out the fire. So that evening, the LAPD and the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department started denying reports that Dorner's body had been recovered from the burned cabin. And Kath, I remember this, like this was crazy. So you're watching the news helicopters and just like any tragedy, there's a lot of speculation. Right. But I just remember it was so scary wondering what really did happen because there were so many rumors flying around. It was like he was Houdini. Right. Every time you thought he was going to be trapped, he disappeared and turned up somewhere else. Totally. So in a press conference, LAPD Commander Andrew Smith stated that no body had been removed from the site, adding that reports of a body being identified were untrue as the cabin was still too hot to make a safe entry. The next day, it was reported that human remains had been found in the search for Dorner's body in the smoldering ruins. Kath, do you remember this? I do. Where everybody was saying it's the owner. Right. This was just so scary. Anyway, a wallet and a California driver's license with the name Christopher Dorner was also found in the rubble. Planted next to the owner. Totally. Is what the rumor was. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Two days after the cabin burned down, medical examiners confirmed during an autopsy using dental records that the charred body found in the burned out cabin was in fact that of Christopher Dorner. 
The following day, San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department announced at a news conference that the autopsy showed Dorner died from a single self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. At the same news conference, Sheriff John McMahon reiterated the claim that deputies had not deliberately set the cabin on fire because, of course, that was one of the accusations by the media. Captain Greg Herbert, who led the assault on the cabin, said the canisters were the last resort, adding that the potential for fire was considered. And of course they had to. Of course. Nine days after Christopher Dorner started his rampage, it was over. He murdered four people, Monica Kwan and her fiancé Keith Lawrence, Riverside Police Officer Michael Crane, and San Bernardino County Sheriff's Detective Jeremiah McKay. Three members of law enforcement with the Los Angeles Police Department, the Riverside Police Department, and the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department were also wounded. The day after the rampage ended, a funeral was held for Officer Crane. This was actually six days after he was killed. The following week was the funeral for Detective McKay. And Kath, as you know, this year was 10 years after this happened because it was 2013. Right. I read recently that the Riverside Police Department and the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department remember these two fallen officers on the anniversary of their deaths every year. The three civilians who were shot in Los Angeles County in the case of mistaken identity sued the Los Angeles Police Department. The 71-year-old mother suffered two gunshot wounds to her back. Her 47-year-old daughter was injured by broken glass. Kathy, I was super surprised to see this. Their settlement was reached within two months. That is incredible. Isn't it? Each woman received $2.1 million plus a new truck. Do you remember seeing videos of this on television? I do. But it was pretty brutal. It oh, was it absolutely like, was. Brutal. The man in the second truck, who was shot at but not struck by any bullets, settled with the LAPD for $40,000. Now, going back to the $1 million in reward money we talked about that was offered by the Los Angeles mayor, 12 individuals filed claims for this money. But because the terms of the reward were not clear, judges had to decide how the money would be divided. Ultimately, it was divided four ways. Jim and Karen Reynolds, who were the couple tied up by Dorner in their Big Bear Lake cabin before he stole their vehicle, each received $400,000. Daniel McGowan, who was a ski resort worker who found Dorner's burned out truck in Big Bear, received $150,000. And R.L. McDaniel, a tow truck driver who spotted Dorner at a Corona gas station, received $50,000. Remember the two LAPD officers who were alerted to Dorner's presence and tried to follow him and he stopped in the middle of the road and shot at them? Right. And then their car was disabled and he got on the freeway and they couldn't chase. Exactly. So this gentleman saw Dorner at a gas station and actually walked up to the LAPD cruiser with these two officers in it and said, hey, I think that's the guy. Oh, wow. And so how far were they? Do you have any idea? You know, I don't. I got the impression that the gas station was on a corner and that they were at an adjacent corner. Oh, interesting. That's cool. He got some money. I agree because it alerted the police to the fact that he was in Riverside County for the first time, not heading down to Mexico. Oh, my God. That's right. Now that I think about it. Yeah. Because by this time they knew that his identification was at the San Diego airport. Correct. Riverside police officer Andrew Takius, who was shot nine times, later returned to work at a desk job with the Riverside Police Department. But that didn't last for long because he didn't become an officer to work at the desk. Because he couldn't do the job that he was hired to do, he decided it was time to move on. He has no regrets about getting into law enforcement, but if he had to go through the same thing again, he said he would not. Because when you get injured like I did, or if you were to pass away, 
it doesn't just affect you. You affect your family, your friends, your coworkers, the community, because everybody cares about you. And so I wouldn't want to put somebody through that again. San Bernardino County Sheriff's Deputy Alex Collins. Now, this was the one who was shot four times at the cabin as he was taking cover behind the wheel of his vehicle, said that the first round entered his face next to his left nostril, went through the roof of his mouth and his tongue, destroying his teeth. He was also hit in the chest and his left forearm. And you know what, Kathy, I found out that Deputy Collins was actually not involved initially in this search because he was on paternity leave. He had a two week old at home. But when Dorner's truck was spotted near Big Bear, which is where his duty station was, he knew he had to go in and help. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? No. Collins is now a sergeant with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department and credits his fellow law enforcement officers that day with saving his life by pulling him to safety despite the gunfire. He said in the ABC documentary, those guys are heroes. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them. Everyone involved, you know, saved my life and they tried to save Jeremiah too. It was a totally selfless act and my kids have a dad because of them. The search for Christopher Dorner remains the biggest manhunt in Southern California history. If you want to give us a five-star rating, we won't object. (laughs) In fact, we would encourage. We would strongly encourage it. Thanks for listening again. If you're not already, please follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Killer Destinations Podcast. Or on TikTok at Killer Destinations Pod. And we'll be adding updated videos on that shortly. Even though we don't like to. I know. We promise we're going to. We're just busy. And so it's hard to take the time because as I know, everyone knows all those influencers who make it look so easy. Yeah. It's not. See you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.